you know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real-life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetail. Well, welcome everyone to the Chasing Giants podcast. This is episode 159, and we're live in Tennessee. We're in Tennessee. Uh, Hendersonville. Hendersonville, Tennessee, just, yep. just I believe, on the northeast side or north side of Nashville. <laughs> right. So we've, we, have a, we have a history of coming down to this area and having tornadoes and high winds, and we have a group of people here that basically drove through a, drove through a tornado to get here tonight because it's, it's nasty mm. out. So did we to get here. I mean, it was raining from the time we left home this morning. And then as we came down, uh, well, first Interstate 57 and then 24 all the way to Nashville, I mean, there was semis turned over. There was three or four times that traffic was down to a crawl. Once we had to take a detour, clear around a overturned semi. Um, we added about an hour and 45 minutes to this trip due to the weather. And uh, I know Steve was saying that uh, he had some calls from people that were going to be here tonight. And they couldn't get out. They had three roads they could leave their proper or their house, and all three of them were blocked with down trees and things. But you said tonight that the people that need to be here are going to be here, and power is out everywhere, but we're in a beautiful church, and they have power here, so we're able to record. So we're going to make the best of it. we got a bunch of people here that hopefully have a lot of questions, but before we get to that, I know you spent some time this week uh, working on the property and you actually found a deadhead that you posted on social media. Let's hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I found him yesterday. He's a buck that disappeared during the 2021 season. Yep. In December of 2021, during our second gun season, I had pictures of this buck right up to that point. I think I had him the first day of the second gun season, and then he just totally disappeared. And I figured he got shot during that second gun season. But uh, no mistaking this buck because he had one brow tine taller than the yeah, other. Yeah, no mistaking. Didn't know what happened to him. And then yesterday I walked up and, and on him and found his remains. And, um, you know, I, don't, I still don't know what happened. Uh, I suspect he probably uh, somebody shot at him, made a bad hit or something because he was healthy as could be. And then, boom, he's gone and uh, turns up dead. So. At least I know where he's at. Yeah, it closes the chapter on it. At least you're not, you know, trying to find it because you you pattern those deer and keep track of their annual data. So uh, sad to sad to see him live or uh, find him like that. But nice to at least move on and and focus on the next one. You, uh, I think you did a few videos for the Whitetail Master Academy for the Chasing Two Hundred that have posted so the people that are subscribed to that are following along as you're out looking for the sheds and i think you broke in the new skid loader this week too i did i mowed my nutri-crave corn plot with that new skid loader so uh got a little dirt on it i'm gonna have to wash her up before the master class (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, well, we got a group here. I want whoever's got the first question to make their way up to the front to grab this microphone and uh, get ready to ask the, 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 the question. Speaking of master, it, the first question is always the hardest. Everybody's kind of sitting back, not yeah. waiting. But we put a bounty out there for the best question of the night. It's going to get some free Osseo camo. But um, give a quick update about our master class situation. I know uh, some of the classes are sold out, and a couple of them we got a little bit of room maybe. Yeah, the dates for the classes are March 9th, 11th, 16th, and 18th. That's uh, Thursdays and Saturdays back-to-back, so two, two on Thursdays, two on Saturdays. They, uh, the, both Saturday classes are, are full, and on the Thursday classes, there's just like one or two openings in each one. So if you, if you want in on that, you need to send Don a message as soon as possible. Right away, yep. So you're going you're gonna to kick it off with the first question since everybody else is being shy tonight? Yeah, I sure will. Don, what will that buck score this year? The buck I just showed the video footage of. Well, I've got his shed antlers from a year ago. Well, you got to tell them first because everybody listening doesn't know what buck you just showed. Well, so you got to answer okay. that first. We're talking about the buck that's featured on the Chasing 200 series on the Whitetail Master Academy. He's the buck that I'm, I'm detailing everything that I do to chase that buck this year. I mean, every little thing, I'm pulling my phone out, I'm, I'm posting a video, and if you guys that are already members have already seen some videos. I, I just started posting this week, but yesterday, for example, I posted two videos the same day as I was working on two different projects. But uh, the, the buck, I, I found his sheds a year ago, um, and they scored 168. And just looking at those sheds and holding them in my hand and comparing them to trail camera pictures and the video footage, He's added at least 15 inches from those. So I know that this year he was at least 183. I'm going to say between 183 and 185 in the video clip I just showed. I have no idea if he's going to make 200 or not. I mean, he's got a chance. He was five this year. He'll be six next year. Um, Whether I kill him is up in the air. Just because he's there, a lot of things can happen. The buck we was just talking about, the deadhead I found, it's a long way between now and October when, when hunting season opens. There's a lot could happen, but we're going to take the, the viewer along every step of the way, and hopefully that mid-180s buck cracks the 200-inch mark, but who knows. And something else I'll throw out is we got, uh, along with that video series, we've got three contests that we're holding for the members. The first contest is open from now until May 1st. Um, I'm looking for a name for that buck. I haven't given him a name yet, so guys submit their ideas for names, and I will pick the winner of of the name that I like the best. And then uh, the next contest will be from about May 1st to about July 1st. I'm going to allow people to guess what that buck scores this fall if I do indeed kill him. Gross Boone and Crockett score. Whoever comes closest to that will be a winner. And then the uh, third contest will basically be from about the 1st of July until about mid-September, right before season opens, give people a chance to guess the date and the time that I shoot the buck if I do shoot the buck. So those three winners are going to come to my house for a weekend of just doing whitetail stuff, just me and those three guys and probably a video guy um, next spring, a year from now, like next March. So uh, my wife just now found out about it, and she's she's – Giving me a dirty look, but <laughs> we're going to have three guests in our home next March. Not in our home, but out in the woods with me <laughs> for, for the weekend. So, uh, Robin's an excellent cook. 
but <laughs> Don's not signing her up to cook for him. No. <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell what we'll eat, but uh, anyway, that's kind hey, of the story on that buck. Hey, there is another variable that could happen for that deer next year. What's that? Me or Corey might kill it accidentally thinking it's a cold buck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the winners of the contest... They get to come to my house if they win. If you guys do that, you never get to come again. <laughs> All right, who's got the who's got the next question? Come on. I know this fella. I was just on his farm uh down here in Tennessee and you made a you made an incorrect statement earlier. I'm telling you, these guys won't like me saying this, but there are some giants in this state. And and the farm that that we just did for this young man, it's got potential to be a dandy, but He's got a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, I think that the Tucker buck from a couple of years ago is yep. proof that Tennessee can grow some giants. So I, I think Steve said it best when him and I were talking uh, one day this week. And, you know, this region of the country is just a little bit behind, a few years behind the Midwest where we're yep. from. And I think as management down here gets better, we're going to see some giants come out of the south. Yeah. So is your is your hand still tingling from all the chainsaw work that you've been doing since I left the farm? Well, uh, <laughs> you've been gone about two weeks, and we've got track hoes and tractors and everything out there. So really excited about what's going on there. And I want to thank you all for getting down here this evening. question I had is I noticed that Don mentioned a big, an extra big buck every three or four years. What are the factors in that, and what can we do to increase that or move that up? Because That's a great, three or four years. A great is, question. Well, there I think go. the factors is is uh, just it's genetics is what it is, and you know about every three or four years, one of them comes along that's got better genetics than the average for that property. I don't think there's anything we can do to to move that up so you got a giant there every year so that could be anything from fetal programming to just the raw luck of the certain buck and the certain doe breeding and that that combination yeah and i mean there's things we can do to bring up the the top end like i described when i started with my farm the top end bucks were on average about 150 inches every year where now they're 170s and i think a lot of that goes back to the the management of the farm but uh, to really grow the true giants, those are freaks of nature. It's like seven-foot human beings, you know. They're not going to come along every day. But every once in a while, you're going to see one. I think the other people that are doing it and, and are having thousands and thousands and thousands of acres that they're managing when they can chase, you know, one every single year they got one, their their sample data is so much larger than what the average hunter, you know, like we are. So, thank you. That answers my question. And one more comment, uh, taking y'all out to my farm to show you what I've done. I mentioned to someone is like confessing my sins at the front of the church, (laughs) (laughs) all the things that I tried to do that I did wrong, but, uh, it feels good to have a plan and know which direction I'm going. So thank you for that. You just got your plan in the mail. What last week, last week we're working on it. Yeah. He's, he's got a dandy property. It's, uh, it's I love big woods and hill country, and when a guys like that aren't scared to work, you can you can do a lot of things with it. And you know I learned by doing things wrong the first five times, and you know if I was smart, I, I'd do them right the second time. But sometimes that happened, sometimes it didn't. I didn't. 
I wasn't just magically born with whitetail knowledge and knew to go out there and do this or that. I learned because I did it wrong, and that didn't work, so I tried something different, and, and I just kept doing that until I got it right. And hopefully that, you know, we can save clients like you a lot of years on the learning curve. And, you know, when I put together the dream team, um, these are all guys that if they went to, if I bought a property and I sent these guys out there and I said, I, I don't have a chance to get there, but I'm coming next week to hunt. I want you to go hang some stands for me. These are guys that I would trust those stands. And there's not very many people that I would trust to hang my tree stands. I'm telling you, it's very, a very small number. But these guys on the dream team, if they went out and hung stands for me, I, I would climb into those stands without question and uh, feel good about my chances of killing mature deer. I'd tell you to hang in a saddle. Yeah, well, I'd leave that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can call it a love swinging church, can I? <laughs> that, that's totally up to you. That's between you and Jesus. <laughs> All right, who's next? Come on. How would you uh, explain the, the importance of good soil condition to produce a good nutritious food plot for growing big antlers to our, our Christian walk and knowing the Bible to lead others to Christ? Ah, well, that's a good one. Well, you, you know, big bucks are a result of the environment they grew up in. Um, it starts with the soil, just like you mentioned. You plant the seed in that soil and it's going to grow and the nutrient content of that plant is going to reflect how rich the soil is in, in those nutrients and then in turn the deer consumes that plant and it's a more nutrient-dense plant because it comes from a more nutrient-dense soil and that that buck is able to to use it and it, it's the same way with our christian walk you know you plant that seed in, in your youth and eventually that seed's going to grow and, you know, someone that's grown up in good soil or a good Christian home is way more likely to become a good Christian. Um, someone who has grown up in poor soil or a, a poor home environment, he's a lot less likely um, to be a Christian because he, he just doesn't know any better for the most part. And that's why it's so important for uh, those of us who have a platform to, to share our faith with others um, because I, I know, you know, both sets of my grandparents were, were Christians that were in church every week uh, until they got really up in years and, and their health prevented them. But when I was a kid, I knew every weekend that this set of grandparents was going to that church, this set of grandparents was going to that church every week. And that's the kind of soil, if you will, that I grew up in. And, you know, I, I know with all the deer hunters that I come in contact with that not all of them grew up in that kind of soil. Some of them grew up in broken homes. Um, just They might have had a great home, but it wasn't a Christian home. They just weren't taught those Christian values. And that's why I think it's so important that when we're given a platform, no matter where it's at, if it's in the hunting industry, in sports, music, as teachers, whatever, that we utilize that platform to the best of our ability um, because you know, one day I'm going to be, my wife probably don't want me to, don't want to hear this, but one day I'm going to be laying there in a casket and my family's going to be there at my funeral and they're going to listen to people come through and, and make all kinds of comments uh, about me and, you know, Don was this, Don was that. But if the only comments that they hear, Don was a great deer hunter, or I really like Don's magazine articles, 
If that's the only comments they hear, then I've wasted my life. I didn't do much with my life. But if I take the platform that I'm given and I try to make a difference in others' lives, if I can somehow introduce them to Christ, then, uh, and I'll tell you, I get some, some messages from, from young guys especially that say, I just, I shared one this week on my Bob, social media. Yeah, Bob yeah. contacted us both the night he was baptized. Yeah, and the guy said week. he just got baptized because, uh, you know, it, we was a big part of it. So, uh, you know, if we can make an impact like that, that's generational. Whether I teach a guy to kill a big buck or not is really, in the grand scheme of things, is not very important at all. But if I can introduce someone to Christ and, and they become a Christian and in turn their kids become Christian and in turn that's generational. We can have a, a positive impact for generations. So I think I got kind of on a rabbit trail off of your question just a little bit, but I think I started on the good path. But anyway, I appreciate the question. Thank you. I heard a sermon not too long ago that, that used an analogy similar to that, and it was comparing input cost to our fields. You know, you can have a huge, great soybean field one year, and then two years later it's devastated because you didn't put any inputs in it. And I think our walk with Christ is very similar to that because if we're not surrounding ourselves with other people that are not only holding us accountable but challenging us, you know, our, our soil is going to get weak, and we're going to get weak. And I think that's where Satan comes in too. So um, I've, I've, I've said it on the podcast, I think you're the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. If you, want, if you want your life to improve in certain areas, you pick those people that are going to pull you, but at the same time, you're pulling people with you. Um, but I think that's a really good analogy of that. I'm looking at this crowd, and I'm probably 40, 40 years older than most of the people here. <clears throat> but my question is about the number of bucks you can harvest. Mm-hmm. Tennessee used to be three. You couldn't find a 140-inch deer in Tennessee five years ago. About five years ago, they went to two deer. There are some great deer around here now. And getting back to the deer herd, about 1965, my dad drove a school bus. About three miles from here over on Drake's Creek Road, he'd stop there every morning because there's four or five does there. That was the first deer. I was 14 years old, and that was the first deer I ever saw in Sumner County. You talk about us catching up to Illinois and Iowa and these places. Is it because they've cut back on the number of bucks you can harvest? I'm glad they did. It's two now. Or is it just what it is? The herd is just getting bigger. Thank you. Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I think um, deer management uh, is catching on and it's spreading. I think it, uh, in the Midwest we had bigger bucks to start with for a specific age class because of our soils. We have, we've got richer soils. And, and I think a lot of southern hunters came to the Midwest um, to hunt those big deer, and, and they're bringing some of those management philosophies home with them. And, and, and part of it, you know, f- does fall on the state game agencies. Um, they need to be the leaders in this. And you mentioned uh, going from a three-buck limit to a two-buck limit. That's a good start. Just imagine what if it was a one-buck limit. It, it would be even better. But uh, it, it goes even beyond that as, as guys start uh, realizing that they can have an impact on the quality of their deer that they are hunting through their own management, through providing better habitat, you know, better bedding cover to allow those bucks to reach older age classes. They can hide in that, that bedding cover during daylight hours, and they can add a year or two to the age of those bucks. 
adding better nutrition, whether it be through food plots, supplemental feeding, or better management of the native habitat, um, that, that's a big part of it too. Um, you know, I think I've used the analogy that I, I see the Midwest as being about a generation behind Texas. A lot of things started in Texas. Deer, serious deer management started in Texas decades ago. And then it came to the Midwest about a generation later. And I think the South is like a generation behind the Midwest. Um, that, that's just from my observations of 46 years of being a deer hunter. So uh, you guys are on the right track. The thing you need to do is look at the mistakes that were made in some of these other states in their management and, and don't make that same mistake. Learn from their mistake and prevent it. And, and I think a big one is, uh, you know, the state of Illinois, um, they became uh, – that at one time, we had the best deer herd on the planet, bar none, better than Iowa. And a lot of you guys probably don't believe it and you don't remember it, but I guarantee you Steve remembers it. We were the best on the planet. And one of the things that ruined it was as, as soon as the rest of the world started recognizing how good Illinois was, then outfitters popped up, and I'm not blaming it all on outfitters. Uh, non-residents started flocking to Illinois without limit. And, uh, you know, pretty soon there was so much pressure put on that resource that the resource couldn't handle that much pressure. And they didn't so, change the, they didn't, they didn't adapt the law to the adjustment and pressure. Right. They, they just they allowed that pressure. It, they just looked at it as a revenue well, stream. being a, a liberal cesspool like Illinois is, they just seen it as a, as a revenue stream. You know, hey, we were selling 10,000 non-resident deer tags last year. Let's sell 20,000 this year. Who cares about the deer herd? Those people don't have enough far-sighted vision to see to the back of this room, let alone, you know, a few years in the future. Um, and, and even the biologists, you know, they were kind of had their hands tied to some degree by the politicians. But, you know, in a southern state, if you start getting a good deer herd, you need to think about limiting non-residents right then. And, and this deal of going to Walmart and buying tags over the counter for a non-resident, you know, that's going to hurt you because the better your deer herd becomes, the more pressure you're going to find from other hunters coming in from other states. And if you can address some of that before the deer herd gets really, really good, um, you're going to be a step ahead of the game. And, and Illinois is taking giant steps backwards in, in our deer herd from what it once was. Um, hopefully you can prevent some of that. I think I just saw that, you know, Iowa does a lot of things right. But I think there's still people looking for revenue in Iowa. But instead of increasing the number of tags, I just saw that they just doubled the price of non-resident tags. Really? So, but but think about it for the sake of the herd. Mm -hmm. I would rather them do that because you're only going to get drawn every three to four years in a lot of cases. I would rather them double the price of that tag than double the amount of people that can come in and hunt and ruin the resource. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that <laughs> because... Uh, I'm not for turning it into a rich man's sport. I mean, you think about the sale of tags for any state. In the, in the big picture, the big scheme of things, the sale of deer tags is minimal for that state's revenue. They're making their revenue a thousand other ways. You know, tax this, tax that, tax everything. I know that as well as anyone being from Illinois. Even doubling the, uh, the cost of that tag it's not in the big grand scheme of income produced for the state of Iowa. That's minimal. And all we've done is we've priced a lot of people out of ever being able to hunt Iowa. Yep. And I don't like that hunting has become a rich man's sport, and it, it, it's going that way no matter what. 
But, you know, I started out as dirt poor as anyone, and if it had been a rich man's sport, you know, 40 years ago, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. And I don't want any young man you – know, deer hunting gave me a reason to be alive. It gave me a passion. It gave me a, something to do with my life. And I'm sure there's other young men in the same boat, and I would hate to see them denied the opportunities I had because they didn't have the money. Well, let's spin that a different way for his, for his last question. How many of our listeners who are in a two-buck state feel the pressure to kill two bucks every year, whether your property or your discipline is there? Just because it's a two-buck state, I think a lot of people, whether it be Illinois, I mean, I spend a thousand... I spend $1,000 on tags and license for Illinois every year between a, a bow tag and a shotgun tag, a habitat stamp, and a license. And I didn't shoot. I think I've shot one buck the last two years. So out of four tags, I've only filled one of them. There, there seems to be a lot of pressure in the hunting community that if I'm in a two-buck state or I have two tags, I always have to kill those two. And whatever the best two or the two that are convenient is what I get. Well, I know in the past there's been some – some, I don't know, some ideas presented to the Illinois DNR, which is a two-buck limit state, to, to bring that down to a one-buck limit state. And the DNR's pushback has always been that a very small percentage of the deer hunters actually tag two bucks. But what they miss is that how many of those hunters kill the first buck that comes along, and then they become a trophy hunter. So what they do, what a one-buck state forces you to do is you know when you pull the trigger, let that arrow fly at that buck, it's over. You get him and you're done for the season. And with a two-buck state, a guy can know that, hey, I get one mulligan here. I can shoot that one and I'm still buck hunting for a trophy buck. So I'm just throwing about the argument that the state of Illinois has used um, and kind right. of – Turn it around. I'm just them. coming at it from, you know, people People feel this obligation. Oh, I got two buck tags. I need to fill two buck tags. And it goes back to not not staying, you know, a discipline to your goal that you set at the beginning of that year. There's definitely people, that, definitely deer hunters with that mentality. No doubt about it. So, All right. We got to get another question up here. Who's ready? Do we need to pass the microphone around instead of coming up here? I think Brandon's got one back there. Brandon Beachy. Uh, Freeman's going to get <laughs> Now nah, you can go. Hand it to him when you're done. <laughs> I don't know if the mic is This on. is another consulting client of mine here. That yep, I, I got driver. to meet him earlier. Yeah, it's good to have you guys here. And uh, I was reading, I guess, got my consulting book coming up here. And um, I was, man, it was awesome just going over through it. But the last page made an impression on me. And it had... Y'all's faith on there, salvation, and all that, and I really made an impression, and uh, I want to thank you guys for that. And my question is, um, Terry, you seen that deer that was in my man cave there, where you was you was over Big there? Big double drop time, just and giant. Uh, my question was, is the year before I killed that deer? See, I've had that deer on my farm since his. I had a picture since he was small, two and a half, three and a half every year. And the year before I killed him. Then he just had one big side and a 10-inch spike. And I had some people tell me, well, he's a call there. You need to kill him. Well, I didn't know. My brother passed him up 20 yards. And I was like, well, let's just see what he, what he, uh, what he makes out of himself. And he turned into this giant 174-inch deer with two 10-inch drop tines the next year, just a trophy. That I didn't, had no idea even recognize the deer until I went back to the previous photos and uh, 
figured out as who it was. But um, my question is, what's the cause of the antlers doing that all of a sudden? Is it an injury? Is it genetics? Um, why would it just all of a sudden have a 10-inch spike and the next year just bursts into a giant? Well, if there's a prize for the question that stumps me, you just got it because uh, I don't have a good answer. And I can tell you that for that to happen is extremely rare. Most of the time when they have a goofy antler on one side, they're going to continue to have that on one side. From my experience with both captive and wild deer, um, I, I don't recall a single instance where I had a deer with a messed up antler, especially just a spike on one side, and then the next year you so, don't ever know it. Yeah, this deer went from a good frame to the next year just had one spike back to a good frame again. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have the answer what caused that. I've never seen it before. Gotcha. Well, thanks for the uh, answer. One more quick question. Yep. So it's not the same topic, but um, I'm looking at in the future, hopefully buying a farm out of state. My question is, um, and I've heard some of your talk on that, but if, is, there a, is there something special you look for? You see these farms all over the place. You're like, man, that's a beautiful farm. And, uh, man, I'd love to have that farm. But I know, is there something special that you need to be looking for more than just a beautiful farm? I know there is, but what's your take on it if you, you're looking for a farm out of state? Is it along a river bottom? Does it help? Is it road frontage? Or what is it that you're looking for to make this farm the best farm for, for the deer hunting? Two things. First, the layout of the farm. You know, you need to think about things like access points and uh, how it lays out in relation to the properties that sits around it. Uh, in other words, you're going to have neighbors. If you do something special with that property, you're going to have neighbors sitting a fence all the way around it. The other thing you need to look at is what surrounds that farm. You can change your farm day and night different. If it's a farm that's all woods and you need food, you come in with a dozer, you can put food on it. If it's wide open, nothing but wide open ag fields and you need bedding cover, you can come in and plant switchgrass, and in three years you've got plenty of bedding cover. But what you can never change is what's around your, what lays right, right outside the boundaries. And I'll give you a perfect example. If you, you could have five acres of wide open tillable ag field, and if that five acres of tillable ag field sits next to a thousand acre sanctuary where no hunting's ever been allowed, guess what? You can kill giants on that five acre ag field every year and you can start doing it year one. What lays around your farm is more important than what lays on it because what lays on it, you can change. What's around it, you can't change. That makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. I tell you what, there's a little bit of pressure when a guy asks you to consult on his property and he knows how to hunt and he's already shot giants on it and still wants to make it better. So I appreciate the opportunity of working on your farm. Brandon, you going to ask a question? Uh oh! I bet he's got a politics question because <laughs> he usually does. Yeah. This is not his first rodeo. He's been to quite a few of these and Brandon's season season veteran. He's been a he's a former consulting client. He's uh, he was a real world dealer for a while. He's been to my master class. He's sitting a tree stand with me actually, and uh, if he's got a question, I'd almost bet it's got to do with politics. <laughs> No, not tonight. Not t- He's shaking his head. Um, I got two questions. Uh, <laughs> number one is, why on previous episodes you talked about you do not post any pictures of bucks you're chasing. So why do, are you posting pictures of this current buck that you showed us tonight? That's a great question. 
And I'm sure I, there's a lot of other people thinking the very same thing. I, I wanted to do something that has never been done in the hunting industry before. In, t- in 2017, the summer of 2017, I went on some podcasts and I said, that this, this fall I'm killing a 200-inch buck. The odds of me killing a 200-inch buck this fall is about 99%. And uh, nobody had ever done that before. It's like Babe Ruth calling his shot, you know, in the in the, the World Series. I'm going to hit it over the left field wall or whatever. And I, I seen the – and I may regret doing it. I may bring in all kinds of pressure. Some, I may bring in a road hunter and somebody shoots him or poaches him off the road or whatever – but, you know, if I don't ever kill another mature buck in my life, I, I've killed way more than my share already. And uh, I thought it would be neat to, to share with people the amount of effort that I put into killing these deer. I mean, there's all kinds of critics out there um, that come up with excuses for other people's success. And it's not just me, but lots of other people. And for me personally, I've had people say things like, I turn loose pin deer. I've got high fence all around my farm, and that's why I kill them. I, I wanted to show people the truth. I, I want to take them every step of the way and show them that I'm doing something to kill big deer on almost a daily basis. And some days, daylight till dark, and my wife's sitting there right next to you. I'll tell you that's the truth. And uh, this is an opportunity for me to do something that's never been done in the hunting industry, calling my shot before I do it, and at the same time, help share some of the knowledge. I mean, I, I may be doing something this summer that I'm sharing on these videos that makes, you know, one of the viewers think, man, I need to get out there and do that. And then it helps them kill a buck that fall. So the older I've gotten, the more um, helping other people means a lot more to me. Um, I think it, there's another level to this too. And, and we learned this. We weren't smart enough to know it up front. But if you look, for people who's watched the Smokey video and people who's watched the Mel video, it's completely different style of cinematography. And and Steve Shields just did an unbelievable job. But the Mel video really was an emotional grab to the whole process of the hunt. You know, not just passing the deer, but hunting the deer and then the closure, you know, with the recovery with his grandkids. And I think that is what's missing in this the hunting industry. We got all these, you know, Instagram models and yoga pants going out just being trigger people, showing the kill, but not showing the real story. And I think with this type of outlet, it, it's not only the, the following of this process the entire year and how much work it puts into it. I think, I think it's our, just, our, our, our responsibility to, to also show the whole process, the whole story of it, not just what the outdoor industry has really become, which is just um, a, a trigger pulling video is that that's really what it is. And I, I'm most excited about this project. I mean, I cringe when he said he was going to do this and he actually, I think hesitated even telling me he was going to do it for a while. <laughs> Cause I think he thought I would try to talk him out of it, but he's at the point in his life where if, if something happens and this doesn't come to fruition, I think you're okay with it. Um, I sure wouldn't do it if I had that deer on my farm. There wouldn't be anybody that knows about it. But I, I really like the aspect of the whole story and the emotional connection with the process that the Mel video really started. And, you know, Steve was really the one with the vision for that. I think he had 
he had thought about doing like um what's the film festival thing that they do yeah. you know he he he's been wanting to uh, to produce a video that is is that style for a long time and you know then it was just dumb luck that don got covid and steve wasn't there for the shot but it all worked out and, mm-hmm. and he just did a fantastic video so i think this is just going to be an extension of that type of you know story that, that's a great question though because i guarantee you, you're not the only one wondering he said he's not going to show any pictures now he's showing video <laughs> so uh i'm glad you gave me a chance to explain that uh talking about pandir how many years did you turn Pandir loose on your farm before you made a big impact <laughs> on the wild well, genetics? You, you would have to ask one of my haters that question. According to them, I've been doing it forever. All right, I'm going to make a noise in the microphone right now, and I'll edit this out if you don't want to share this. Well, okay. <laughs> Do you mind telling the story on the podcast and in front of these people on when you finally – we're fed up with raising captive deer when you when you took that deer to that one place. Do you mind sharing that story? And if no. if, if if you don't want to well, share it, if you don't want to share what happened, we'll edit this part out and 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 not go any further. But I'll share it. Okay. Um, I think I think this is this the story itself. When 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 he told me, I was like, wow. And and that's really what kind of mm-hmm. put the nail in the coffin for you. So anybody that raises pin deer, the the market is the box that you raise. Um, they, they mainly go to big high-fence shooting ranches where people come in and pay high money uh, to shoot those bucks. And uh, I remember one of the last bucks that I had to sell, I sold it to a particular place, and uh, the guy wanted me to back up to this gate and be real quiet and let the deer out. And uh, he was going to be waiting in a blind with a hunter. And... The deer, where I was letting him out of this gate, there was like a mowed path, and he thought the deer would walk right down this mowed path to the blind. And then if it all worked according to plan, uh, him and the hunter would be sitting there. But he wanted me to be quiet and not bang gates and not be slamming the trailer doors and, and all this. And so we did that, and we and I pulled away, and I literally, literally was not a mile down the road. And... He texts me and says it worked perfect. He's got him. That, that deer was out of that trailer literally two minutes before a guy put a bullet in him. And I was so disgusted by the whole thing. And, and I was already considering getting rid of the deer anyway. I mean, I'd had him for 20-some years, and it kind of you know, ran its course. And you, you had gotten out of it what you wanted anyway, which was the research. So Right. And that was like the last straw. When that happened, it's like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever been a part of. I don't ever want to be a part of it again. And uh, before, I mean, literally within five minutes of me leaving his place, I knew I was done with the whole captive deer business. I thought it was a pretty cool story that he's never shared, so... All right, you got another question? So I've got another question. Five years ago, when I bought this property that you're just consulting me on now, I bought it as a place to take my family and guests and coworkers and clients to. I took a client last year, and I passed a deer that was a two-year-old eight-point. 30 minutes later across the hollow, I hear a shot, and I go over and... He's got the buck of a lifetime for him as this little basket rack. 
Do you have any advice on hunting with children and other people? And, uh, you know, we, I think my property has four stand sites, three or four stand sites, how to keep them in the straight and narrow. <laughs> well, it really comes down to you need to define the goal you have for that property. If your girl's goal is to grow giant deer, you're not going to be able to get away with a lot of things. If your goal is to use it as a, uh, you know, a recreation property for your family, you're not going to be able to grow big deer. That's fine. Um, I, I think big antlers have made a lot of people do stupid things. And one thing I like to preach is that you keep your priorities in order. And I would encourage you first, especially those kids, you know, I can tell you, those kids are going to grow up quick, and they're going to be out of the house before you know it. And while they're there, you need to make the most of every year they're there. Um, you got the rest of your life to chase big deer. So, uh, you know, just keep your priorities in order, but realize that as your deer goals rise, the amount of human intrusion that you're going to be able to put on that property and get away with is going to shrink. The bigger the bucks, the less human intrusion. The more human intrusion you put on the property, the smaller the bucks are going to be that you're going to be hunting. And it's really that simple. you got to find that balance. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with shooting a buck at this level. That will allow me to have this much human intrusion on that property. You can't have your cake and eat it too sometimes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, you know, we have, we have a property. It's actually a funny story. We call it the lease that we keep every year and, and really we haven't had a decent deer on it since you've had it but we keep it because we don't know if we have to take a sponsor or a guest or anything and if one day there's a giant on it we'll go hunt it but I think I've hunted it three times in the last three years four times in the last four years and it's just a different property we can take a friend or a guest and I don't care what they shoot at that place but the farms that we hunt it's very specific but and i have one last question terry have you ever considered putting a fifth stand or a last stand on a property in a location just for guests that you don't need to kill big deer um no because i'm selfish and i don't take guests on my farm um it's i mean i i pay the taxes on it we we spend the money on it um but what i do have is we set up in Kentucky, it's a bait state, so I can set up a feeder real close to the barn, and if I take a kid, you know, when my kids were young or whatever, we would hunt out of the barn, and if we shot something, there was no intrusion on the farm. Or if you're in a, it'd be the same plan that we had if you had just a crazy number of does and we needed to take a lot of does off your farm, we would set up probably up where the old cabin is, you know, someplace up there that if you shot something, we're not affecting that new sanctuary that we're putting in, you know, next to the big power line plot. Um, I would put a plan together like that for something that, you know, I didn't really affect my sanctuary with intrusion because that deer would have to go a long way to to mess me up from the old cabin to the to the power line plot. But I wouldn't take him into the honey hole. Besides, you got a real nice recliner in the old cabin. You could just shoot out the window. <laughs> all right another questions come on this is the quietest crowd we've had oh we got well, one coming here 
Go ahead and line them up so there's not the dead time here. Terry, you said in your, am I too loud? You no, jumped. you're good. That's, I just hate when scary. questions says you oh. said because I don't even remember what I say sometimes. <laughs> well, in your opening statement, you said that uh, God talked about deer hunting. Yeah, we got we. I asked I asked everybody if they knew that there was deer hunting advice in yep. the New Testament with I, Paul. I, well, he told Peter to rise, kill, and eat. Yeah, that's so, true. Even though deer taste good, they didn't know they was about to eat hog. <laughs> so, but anyway, I I do have a question. Um, if the wind is perfect for your stand location. And sometimes we get a, the same wind eight, ten days in a row, which ten days is a far stretch without a wind change. But is there a certain amount of times you should hunt that stand and then for the sake of burning it out or whatever word you want to use and not hunt that stand uh, just to let it rest? It all depends on access. If you've got good access and the wind is good, you can understand multiple days. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have a rule like that because usually I've got so many stands for every wind direction. I don't have to worry about it. If the wind stays south for a week. I can hunt a different stand every day of the week with a south wind. But uh, I, I've got stands. I absolutely am confident that I could hunt every day for a week with the right wind and never burn them out. So I'm, it's access. Can everything. I spin your question to just a little bit different that I think a lot of people could relate to? If if you're in that same situation and for some reason a deer busts you, are you going back in with even though you had good access and you don't think it's going to happen? Are you going to let that stand settle down a little bit before Nanny Doe comes in the second time? Um, it probably depends on the situation. If I've if I'm on a big buck and that's my best option to kill him, I'm going to stay there. Mm-hmm. If not, then I'm going to move around. What if the buck busts you? Then I'm moving that stand. Not a good chance of killing him after you, he's busted you, isn't no, it? No, your odds go way down. Just a different way of asking the same question. All right, what's yours? This, this might be a little bit of a off-the-wall question, but what is your opinion on um, – the thing of deer processing centers. Um, do do people pull the trigger a little bit quicker if they know they can take the deer ten minutes down the road, get it processed? Is there is there anything to that to a deer population in a certain area? Well, I've never really thought about that, but uh, I, I think some people are just trigger happy. They're they're gonna they're gonna shoot deer no matter what. Um, I, I just heard a story in, in the past couple of weeks a guy was a uh, he was a cameraman for a very famous hunter and he filmed the guy shooting a 135 inch buck and after they shot it the guy they went over and like they was claiming it and everything and, and then the the big name hunter just left it and the guy the cameraman's like aren't we going to process this he says no we're going to hunt for a bigger one um, if I shoot one, fine, we'll get rid of that, that footage of the 135. We'll use the bigger one, but we're, we're not going to put a tag on that. But there's people that will pull the trigger for a thousand different reasons, and uh, a lot of them are not good reasons. And if you're killing them just to, because you got a local processor, I mean, if, if the meat's going to be utilized, I, I guess it's not a bad thing. 
But I, I don't know if that's a good excuse to be shooting deer. Our buddy Brian Teets makes some really good deer bacon, so I don't want to give up our processor connection. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess one reason I asked is just I, I think a lot of us as deer hunters are starting to learn the art of processing a little bit more maybe if we don't have a processor right there. Yeah. Um, another question, being a fellow Kentuckian, what are – maybe three things that would make Kentucky the best state on the planet, like Don said Illinois used to be. Do you want me to answer that or Don? How about you? <laughs> Terry, go ahead. Um, take rifle season out of the rut. Um, right now we have what our rifle season opens up the first Saturday in September, or November, second Saturday in November and goes through Thanksgiving. So we have two weeks and three weekends of high-powered rifle. The good thing is, is it's a one-buck state. And, um, you know, I'm not – I'm all for supplemental feeding. I'm not a big fan of baiting um, because I think that just – it enables people to take the shortcut and just throw corn down versus take the big picture. Are we using nutrition to improve the herd? It's, we've had this discussion about Ohio all the time. Um, but I don't know if I can get to three things, but the biggest thing that would make Kentucky probably right there with a lot of states, at least two-thirds of the state, I think I think the, the, the southeast corner, you know, over by West Virginia, that's, that's a little bit tougher because there's just no ag over there. But two-thirds of the state of Kentucky could be just as good as anywhere else if they would probably limit out-of-state hunters to a draw system of some sort or something. Right now it's an over-the-counter, I think, what, $200 tag or something like that, I believe, for out-of-state. And as bad as what people, you know, disagree with me, get that rifle season out of the rut. Have it Thanksgiving and, and later. You know, you could have it. you could have it four weekends, but the amount, the combination of having bait piles and having rifle season in the rut a lot of two- and three-year-old deer get shot. I don't really have a question, but I was kind of wanting you to elaborate on something for me. Me and Dad went to Iowa year before last. Got to hunt with Mark Luster and Hunter. Well, over the course of about an hour and a half breakfast, I learned more about deer behavior <laughs> than I'd learned my whole life. <laughs> the one thing he really talked about was how the mature bucks use the wind quartering into the wind and I just want to see if you could kind of break that down and I got some friends here that I'd really like for them to hear it so well you need to bring those friends to the master class with you and then they can see it firsthand it's that to ask anyone to try to explain playing the wind in this setting is really difficult but uh you know basically I don't even know where to start if you if you could remain 100% scent-free and just magically drop out of the sky into your stand scent-free, you're still not playing the wind because you've got to consider what that buck is going to do using the wind. I mean, if, it, if everything is 100% right for you, that means it's probably 100% wrong for him. And he's just not going to be comfortable moving. He's just going to lay in his bed till it's dark. or Yeah, until it's dark, and then he's going to get up and move. You, you need to... Give him a win that he feels comfortable. He thinks he's safe. And uh, 
then he becomes killable because then he's on his feet in daylight. If he's not comfortable, he's just not going to move. And, you know, they typically want a quartering nose wind is, is the best way to hunt them. So if, a, if I'm a buck and I'm headed this way, I don't want that wind straight in my nose. I want it quartering into my nose. So I, I can run the, if the wood's edge is here. I can run this edge with that scent coming out of that cover right, right at me on that edge. I can use my eyes to, to cover myself out here in the open country, and I can use my nose to cover everything on this side. But yet if a hunter is sitting right on the edge of the woods, you know, that's, his scent can either blow right over the top of that buck's back or maybe he is just barely on the downwind side of that buck. And uh, like I said, you're going to see this when you come to the master class. Um, every stand, that we're going to look at about a dozen different stands on two different properties at that class. And I'm going to explain how I'm playing the wind on every one of those stands, and I'm going to explain why it works, what the buck is doing as he comes by those stands on the same wind. There's three steps to playing the wind. First, whatever the wind direction is, you need to be able to get into your stand with that wind direction, not blowing your scent into where you expect the deer to be. With that same wind direction, once you get to your stand, your scent needs to be blowing in a direction you're not expecting deer. And then that same, and that's, I think a lot of people get those two. But the one they don't get is that same wind direction must be good for a buck to walk past that tree. And that's where everybody fails. Is they, There's a deer trail. I'm sitting here in my stand watching this deer trail. I want my scent blowing this way. Well, no, you want it blowing this way or this way because then a buck can come down this trail and he's got a quartering wind. If it's blowing this way, it's taking your scent this way away from the trail he's on, but yet he's walking into that quartering wind. I mean, this is why it's it's so important, especially if it's your own property. And, and, you know, the public land guys always, you know, speak up and talk, well, I can't do that on public, and they're they're right. If you're setting up a property, you need to look for a, a, a spot that you have that access, then change the habitat to match where you have the access. And I think I think people don't get that. They just say, Deer sign is over in that corner. I need to go hunt that. And you're not going to have those three variables. But if you're talk clean sheet of paper and I have access right here, I can create that habitat around it to create that scenario for you, if that makes sense. That's a big advantage someone that owns a property has over um, someone that doesn't. And I don't think most landowners fully take advantage of it. Most deer hunters and land managers, they go out, and just like Terry described, they try to take advantage of what the deer are doing. Okay, the deer are doing this, that's, I'm going to go there and I'm going to hunt them there. Well, what we do when we set up a property is, okay, here's a situation. Here's, a, here's the, the perfect tree. Here's the perfect access to that tree. I just need to get those deer to pass this in front of that tree. And there's ways that we can do that. And we manipulate the habitat on a property in such a way to get those deer to move where we want them to move. And, and we're giving them the wind. You know, we're giving that buck the wind. We, we realize that, hey, I can build this situation, and I can take what is a good stand site today, and I can make it a fantastic stand site by doing these two or three different things. And uh, you're going to see a lot of that, you know, when you come to the class. 
But that's that's the biggest reason we will not consult by an aerial map. Mm-hmm. There's there's no way you could do that. I mean, you you have to look at where your access is and then change your habitat to bring the deer to that access. Versus here's a funnel, here's a saddle, go in and hunt them. Got got one more question. Okay. As good as your farm is at home and everything you've done to it, if there was one thing you could change about it what, that you can't do, is there one thing that you wish you had that there's nothing you can do about it? More land. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, there's a couple of little pieces of ground that join mine that I wish I, I owned, and I'm in the process of trying to get those taken care of. I did just buy another 40 acres that's gonna, that joins my farm. You're going to see that on the class two. Um, I think when I get done with that 40 acres, my farm is going to end up being twice as good as it is today. And the reason I say that is I think I'm going to be able, the bucks that I'm losing now, I think I'm going to be able to cut that way down. I'm not going to lose as many as I have been in the past. And I think it's going to be easier to take the bucks that I want to take to the next older age classes than it is now um this new 40 that i'm adding to my farm is going to give me a mile and a half of creek with every single bit of cover on both sides of that creek for a mile and a half and where that mile and a half ends that creek becomes an open ditch without a single tree on it for a half a mile so there's really no place for somebody to set up right at the end the other end is where I've got my one bad neighbor where i got an eight-foot fence down my north side, which I've never tried to hide. Um, so I've got a mile and a half with a fence on one end, nothing but wide-open ag fields on two sides, and where that creek comes out the end is a ditch that's got, not got a tree on it for a half a mile. Uh, so I, I've, I've got isolation in, in such a way that it's almost, it's very rare for a property to have that much isolation. And... Now it's big enough, it's long enough, and I'm going to be adding 40 acres of cover um, that I, I think it's just going to make it twice as good as what it has been. It's isolated and it has access. That's the two golden nuggets. All right, we got time for just a couple more questions, so uh, make your way up to the front and just stage up here if you got one on the queue. That way we don't have to wait in between as long. Yeah, I enjoyed having you all here tonight. Listen to your podcast pretty much every week. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been hearing a little bit about Don and his dogs, and <laughs> I know we can hire him for a land consultant, but I was just wondering if there's a dog extermination consultant that we can hire. Um, I've got a little bit of a problem with dogs, and it seems like he knows how to take care of them. So didn't know if you'd come down there and do that for us or not. Well, you see me afterwards, and I'll, i got a couple <laughs> ideas for you. But. Yeah, my question on habitat, um, so I'm wanting to plant some real-world switchgrass, and where I need part of my fire break, I don't want food because of a neighbor that's hunting the line there. Um, what would you recommend for the fire break, and, and like how big does it need to be? Um, do you just keep it bush hogged if you don't want food there, or? What works for that? So you can't take the fire break to the line because there's a neighbor sitting right on the line? Pretty much. Um, I can take it to the fence, and um, he's, his stand would be like 50 yards from, from the fence. 
Um, and I don't really want Clover right up against my fence, mm-hmm. you know, if they're coming off of him. Makes sense. Traveling right by him or something. Well, I'd just put switchgrass right up to the fence, and then when it comes time to, to burn it, go in there and mow that switchgrass all along that edge where it'll be a whole lot easier to control that fire. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I have. Thanks for all you all do. Yeah, thanks for coming you out knock, tonight. You knock it down, it won't shoot a flame quite as high. Mm-hmm. If you don't even have a bush hog, just drive ATVs or stuff over it just to knock it down so it's laying. Yep. Well, I appreciate you all coming out this evening. Um, I had a question. Have you ever had a situation like this, or what would you do in a situation where you've been hunting a farm for a couple years and then a pretty good deer shows on it, and that same year somebody else starts hunting it, and they've got permission uh, but you know enough about this deer and have permission on a property next to it that they don't, and you think you can kill it, but you're not sure what they're going to do, you know, how they're going to feel about it, and then throw on top of that that uh, they're baiting in a no-bait state. Well, if they're breaking the, the law, I'd, I'd call the I'd call the game warden. There's no doubt about that. If they're breaking the law, they're breaking the law. Makes family Thanksgiving really interesting if they're kin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you was there first and and they moved in on you um, and you got permission on the neighboring property, well, I I would hunt the property that you're sharing with them right out of the gate early in the season and uh, not put pressure on the, the next property over where they don't have permission. And that way, eventually, uh, you know, I just figure that every hunter that's in the woods is is burning out properties. And uh, I, I just assume that they're not playing the wind, they're not watching the wind, they're not watching their scent or anything else. And I, I would hunt that property hard early until that other hunter, and as well as yourself, burns it out, And which at, at which point you probably push the buck off of the property anyway, and then you go hunt him next door um where the other guy can't i can tell you it's really hard to kill two big bucks on permission property because once you kill one good one usually somebody else is coming in on top of you it's very rare that that doesn't happen it's tough definitely all right question for you don you had said in the here earlier that we can ask anything. <laughs> I guess that's the case. <laughs> yeah, my wife's right there beside you. So. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. Yeah. Um, I guess there uh, several guys came up to me one time and said that about the master class that you go out ahead before guys come up there and play sheds out there just for the sake of advertising and. Is that true? <laughs> I, I think in the whole time of all these master classes, I think we found two sheds. I found both of them. One of them was a year-and-a-half-old dink, and the other one was maybe a three-year-old. No, there's never been sheds planted. And, and just ask the people that were there. It's like these guys that are saying my farm's surrounded by a high fence. Last year, there was 150 people on my farm from 24 different states. And those people are not the ones saying that I'm planting sheds because they didn't find any, I guarantee. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I was there on the first uh, master class with 
Bronson Strickland, and I think we maybe found one, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We second. found one on the other property once. Yeah, right that was the, the blind. That was the one I was thinking that was a year and a half old, right? And we have, uh, we kind of make it a tradition after the last class, the last Saturday, if the weather's right, we usually burn one of the switchgrass fields and shed hunt that Sunday afternoon. It's kind of a tradition that we have. And we found some then, but it's not like we come toting them out either. Mm-mm. I've never planted a shed for a class. <laughs> I can say that unequivocally. Not one single shed has ever been planted on my farm. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna plant some little debbies. It's gonna be like a Pokemon <laughs> uh, Easter egg hunt. Easter egg hunt out across the farm. Whoever finds the Twinkie gets a prize. Whoever finds the Ding Dongs gets a prize. How about that? That'd be fun. Yeah. Second question I have for you is we're having some issues or had in the past with people stealing trail cameras and stuff like that. Got any advice for us? It seems very frustrating to me to have to lock up our Reconix trail cameras on our own property for fear that they'll walk off on us. Mm-hmm. Well, you can hang, put, put a camera obvious, um, you know, on a tree, a, a post, a stake, or whatever, and then hide one in a tree watching that camera, you know, up high where it's, it's hidden in some branches and such, and try to catch them doing that. I mean, it, it's pretty tough, but uh, it's about the best advice I can offer. Turn the dogs loose. <laughs> <laughs> it's on. Um, so my question is on shed hunting. Um, I really enjoy shed hunting, but on a on a smaller property um, that you don't own the property, say about got about twenty acres of cover. Um, how much is too much when it comes to shed hunting? Um, a little like a little advice on. Um, I used to just you know go in there a couple times a spring and stomp around look for them, but I'm not not sure what what's a good strategy when it comes to trying to look for sheds without placing too much intrusion on it. Well, it, do you have to worry about other people coming in and finding the sheds before you do? No. Well, in that case, I would wait. I'd just totally stay out until right before it greens up in the spring. I'm going to guess down here we're getting close to that time, you know, mid-March. I would wait as long as you can and then go in um, if you don't have to worry about anybody else coming in ahead of you picking them up. Is yeah, and do you do you go into your sanctuary to look for sheds at all? Or one time, yep. And then the other question I had was back in the hunting season, you'd mentioned something about Ron Slifer got shot in the leg or something. And <laughs> yeah, um, thought it'd be interesting to hear that story sometime if you have the liberty to share it. But. We'll see if we can get him on to share it. Uh, we I'm talked not, about that after the accident yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, I haven't talked to him recently. He's he's, he's posting on social media, but I assume he's doing. He's he's about as tough as nails, though. I mean, wasn't he in a real bad motorcycle wreck years or, ago? Or years something? ago, and then another because another guy was running Dio at that time because I think he was recovering from something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was a motorcycle or an accident, but. That man's that man's tough. Real quick before this question, though, I think when he was asking about shed hunting your sanctuary, talk a little bit about the strategy of of how you shed hunt your strategy from each direction um, for everybody. I think that might be a good quick story that might give mm-hmm. some people advice this time of year. 
So typically we do that shed antler hunt on the Sunday after the last master class, which is in mid to late March. And typically after church on Sunday, my daughter, son-in-law, and two grandsons are there. And usually it's me and maybe Terry or a friend. And we, we don't, we push it out a certain way. So we start at one end of the property and we'll go about halfway so that we, we don't go all the way through and push the deer all the way off the farm. We go about halfway through and uh, do our shed hunt systematically on a grid almost. And then we'll come around from the other direction and we'll push back halfway. So we're not pushing the deer off of the property. We're, we're almost training them that they just run to the other end of the farm. And then we come around and we push them back. Um, so it's kind of a, a systematic search, if you will. Yep. Quick question. Um, is turkey hunting your farms in the spring putting too much pressure on it for deer? Terry would growl every time he saw a turkey running, but I love my turkeys. <laughs> well, I think it depends on how it's done. I, I don't think you want to go stomping through your sanctuary, but where's the best place to hunt those turkeys in the spring? And I'm not a turkey hunter. I'm just saying from what little I know, and I know about this much, is you want to be on those green fields, you know, out on the edge. Exactly. I, I think out there you're probably not doing much harm at all that time of the year. Um, stay out of your sanctuary, though. That Thank was you. one of his goals with his property that he wanted to do. So we have one green plot that's elevated higher than anything next to where they roost where he can go up and do that, but it's not near his real big bedding area. So that was just one of the goals that we set up when we um, figured out what we wanted to do with the property. Perfect. Kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate y'all coming. Thank you. It means a lot. It's a five-hour drive down here, but Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, question I got is like traveling out of state, what advice you'd have? What state, what, I mean, public land, of course. Uh, what state? I mean, there's, there's several good ones. I mean, Iowa, Illinois has got some good spots, Kansas, Ohio. Um, those would probably be my top four. Um, the, the advice I would have is, well, it depends on what your goal is. If you've got really lofty goals like I do, you need to know that you've got a target buck there before you – like I drew an Iowa tag, was it last year, and I didn't have a buck to hunt. I, I was so busy with my consulting and other th things, I'd planned to do some scouting that winter ahead of season, and I just got so busy consulting I didn't have time to do it. Well, then season rolls around, and I don't have a target buck to shoot. And uh, I think if you've got lofty goals, you need to make sure before you make the trip to that other state, before you buy a tag at that other state, that you've got a buck that you would be happy putting your tag on. One more. Uh, your public land 200-inch deer, are you still trying to achieve that? Um, not near as hard as I was at one time. I've... I've uh, my public land experience last year was so disgusting that if I never step foot on public land again, it won't break my heart whatsoever. With that said, if the opportunity comes along where I f find out where there's a giant on public land, depending on the situation, I may go after it, but I may not waste a minute of my time either. It just, I don't know, it's <laughs> sore subject. The worst deer hunter I ever met on the planet in terms of ethics I met on public land last year. And I actually never even really met him face to face. He was too much of a coward for that. But 
what you um, got? I, I, uh, I just want to say I appreciate you guys. I look forward to listening to the podcast every week, and I've been watching the podcast religiously. Learned a lot. Um, my question is, um, does a buck always bed with the wind to his back? Let's say if the wind changes throughout the day, does he get up and move throughout the day, you know, when he changes his bedroom, depending how the wind is shifting? Well, I think when it comes to mature bucks, you can never use the words always and never because they're going to do things that you think they would never do, and uh, they're never going to do something always. Uh, I do think that they, they get up and they shift their bed. It might only be four feet. They may just turn around in the same bed and face a different direction, but I've, I've watched a lot of deer, not just bucks, but other deer bedded, you know, from a stand, and they just don't remain bedded in one spot all day long. Now, they may not go very far. They may go from, you know, me to that guitar over there, but they do get up and stretch and then bed back down, and maybe they'll face the same way. Maybe they won't. Um, there, there's just no absolutes that we can count on like that. I got you. One other question is, if you would have permission to hunt a 200-inch deer, but you'd only be allowed to shoot them with out of a love swing or expandable broadhead, which one would you go with? <laughs> well, I'm definitely not shooting a deer with an expandable broadhead. So uh, I, guess I guess I'll be swinging. Saddling, like, I guess he's saddling up. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not using a mechanical broadhead. I think more the deer than that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I still think I have nothing against it, but as accident prone as I am and as many surgeries as I've had in the last three years, I'm, I'm cutting my losses. I'm not strapping myself to a strap in a tree. <laughs> I'm just, that's my biggest thing. I, I just, I'm, I'm going to be hanging upside down with the thing wrapped around my ankle or something if I'm lucky. But if people are coordinated enough to do it, more power to them. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to make that choice. No, me neither. We, we're getting to the point in our lives where we just want ladder stands because right. we don't even want to climb up the side of a tree anymore. That's true. I got one question. If you're, me and a friend of mine is hunting a lot together on his property, and we experienced food plots during spring, summer eating, and we did try where well, we didn't have any really food plots, just natural browse, and we were fed from and uh, protein pellets from the end of deer season to spring, what would you say would be the best way for uh, growth opportunity? We noticed that the deer, after they fed on that feeder all winter, early spring, their bodies were really heavy. A uh, lot of good antler, a lot of good bucks at the, at the feeder that we normally hadn't seen at food plots. Which one do you think is best? Feeder or food plot? Um. I'm Preferably both. If, you, if you're in a state where you can do both, I would definitely have both. Um, if I had to make a choice, I would rather those deer be feeding in a food plot than a feeder. Um, a, a deer's got a natural ability to balance his own diet if given the opportunity. And I think uh, with a good food plot program, you can provide everything they need. Um, I do like supplemental feeding, but it is a, just what its name says. It's supplemental it's supplementing what they might not be able to find in their natural environment. But with a good food plot program would, would be my choice. How you doing? Good. How are you? All right. Um, you may have talked about this before. I don't know. But uh, what is your thought on uh, moon phases? And uh, I know there's people in the hunting industry that base everything off of that. But 
I've been blessed to be able to shoot some giant deer that kind of fall in line with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was also rut, first week of November. I mean, it fell in line with a lot of things, but I do know wildlife have a lot to do with them. The moon and the world and everything turns like that. So just some thoughts on that. Well, I think there's probably a little bit to that. Um, you know, I, I got a daughter that's a nurse, and she worked in an emergency room for a number of years, and she would tell you when the when there was a full moon, the emergency room was full. The, the idiots were out doing stupid stuff, getting hurt, and ended up in the emergency room. And, you know, the ocean tides kind of rise and fall um, with the moon. There's something to it, but I think it's overblown. I, there's thing I, weather trumps the moon. There's no doubt the weather trumps the moon. And you know, I don't pay attention to those moon charts whatsoever. But I, I'd make a bet with you. I'll bet you this year's moon chart says it's going to be great hunting on November seventh. <laughs> and that, that's what it boils down to a lot of times. You know. It's, it's going to be good November 7th. Maybe I should have my own chart. I'll tell you what day is going to be good, November 7th. <laughs> I think that there is people in the industry that will plan when they go hunting based on a moon phase. But if I, that's, that's part of the reason I choose to hunt where I do in Illinois is because it's three hours from the house. So I can hunt Illinois three hours away. Um, that's, that's one of the perks of where we have these ability or access to hunt. I would rather just wait for the right cold front or the right right weather pattern and go hunt that no matter what the moon is than say Mm -hmm. it's the right wind, it's the right temperature, it's the right pressure, whatever. You know, the the wind from a southwest to an east and then back, that always comes with a huge pressure change. I'm going to hunt that every time over what the moon is. Yep. But does it fall in line sometimes? Yeah, probably. But if I'm planning a hunt, it's not about that. Okay. All right. Was that our last one for the night? I think so. Looks like it. Anybody else go on? You got any closing thoughts to talk no, to? No, I, I just think it's great that uh, all you folks showed up here tonight. Uh, the weather was absolutely terrible to get here. A lot of roads were closed uh, due to overturned semis, trees across the road. And um, just appreciate the, the platform that we've been given and uh, trying to make the most of it, and we couldn't do it without you guys. I mean, if we didn't have your support, um, there'd be no reason for us to be sitting here talking. So just appreciate all you guys more than uh, you know because uh, you you guys are the ones that make it possible. All right. Why don't we close with prayer this time? You okay with that? Absolutely. All right, let's, let's bow our heads and we'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to get together with friends that uh, we maybe don't know personally, that we know through social media or just through the podcast. It's such a great opportunity to get to a different part of the country and get to shake hands and and talk to people. But most of all, Father, we're we're a bunch of guys together that got, got to sit down and talk about deer hunting, but more importantly, challenge each other. Uh, associate and fellowship with other guys to make us better whether that's in the deer woods or as Christians or as fathers as husbands and I just pray that like we talked about to begin this whole thing that we walk out of this door saying I therefore from Ephesians chapter 4 what we're going to do and that's a call to action with no excuses with drive and 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 with discipline to uh, to put those goals to to use and and make a difference, whether it's on our property or in our lives. Father, thank you for sending your Son Jesus to die for us, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Thanks, everybody. God bless everyone. Have a great week. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.